sure it's not such a long sermon. But what I want to say from the outset today is that the issue lying behind that story really matters. Why? Because it robs us of the life and the life in all its fullness that God longs for us. That issue is idolatry, which contrary to what I used to assume, actually affects us all. And so that's the stuff I want to major on today. And here's how I plan to get there. First of all, we'll briefly unpack the story. Second, we'll look at why it mattered. Third, we'll unpack what is idolatry for us today. And then finally, fourth, what can we do about it? So that's where we're heading. First, let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak through all of Scripture. The easy bits, the hard bits, the happy bits, the sad bits. Thank you that your spirit is with us. Thank you that your word speaks again and again for the rest of history by your spirit. And we pray it would speak to us now. Lord, speak into our lives. May this not just be historical knowledge, but would it be transformation of our own hearts, convicted by what we read. In Jesus' name. Amen. So on with the story. And let's note first the context, which was that we've got a community of people here, the Israelites, who had, of course, seen some pretty amazing things. They'd begun in slavery, as you'll remember from the beginning of the series in May. Then Moses turned up, performing some pretty amazing miracles. Then once he'd assumed their leadership, got to know them, They then saw the ten plagues, leading to that remarkable escape from Egypt. They experienced the parting of the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army pursued them. They received manna and quail from heaven. They saw Moses draw water from the rock, and they had the presence of God with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a cloud of fire by night. And they had God clearly speaking to them through Moses, giving them or beginning to give them his law, including the oh so important Ten Commandments. But then Moses went AWOL. Now, admittedly, he did say where he was going. God had called him up the mountain alone. But clearly the people he left behind were expecting him back sooner than he had arrived back. He still wasn't there. He left them in Exodus chapter 24. And now by chapter 32, he's been gone 40 days and 40 nights. And so we can understand a bit their unease and their uncertainty. And why they genuinely started to wonder, is he coming back at all? For these were people with families standing there in the middle of a desert with no homes and no jobs. The manna and quail were great. But everybody knew at any moment the manna could dry up. The quail could stop falling miraculously from the sky. They felt exposed, vulnerable and scared. And so what they do is on one level understandable. They go back to what they used to know. For they spent their whole lives up to then in Egypt and they would undoubtedly have experienced some of the local religion. And the calf was what the Egyptians had worshipped, the calf god 
was what they put their trust in. In a time of fear, they were hedging their bets with something familiar. And what they were doing here was not an outright rejection of God, but rather a supplementing their worship. They didn't say, God, we hate you, let's be atheists. No, verse 5 tells us that they declared it a feast for the Lord. And in verse 4, Aaron had said to them, these are your gods, i.e. plural, the calf and Jehovah. So the calf was not so much a replacement for God, it was a supplement to God. But that's the case for the defense. The case for the prosecution is far stronger, and it starts with the Ten Commandments that you heard about last week. As you heard then, when the Ten Commandments were delivered, God said this, I am the Lord your God, He brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Statements blatantly contradicted by the people's proclamation, who said in front of that calf, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And they did no better with the next commandment, which we know said, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In the light of that then, this act of folly is in fact blatant disobedience. It's followed by revelry uh, that would certainly have not been family viewing. We don't need to go into that, although I know Tim uh, did uh, promote today's sermon as being about orgies, but I'm actually not going to go down that road. Sorry, Tim. Meanwhile, as all this is going on, uh, back up the mountain, God, who knows exactly what's going on, tells Moses all about it and says, I've seen these people and they are stiff-necked people. And I'm really struck by that term, stiff-necked people, like oxen, like horses that refuse to go where their rider wants them to go. And he continued, Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Now we can't be sure, but I would say that here, This is God testing Moses. And if so, it's a test Moses passes with flying colours, quoting God's interests and God's promises back to him. For in verse 11, we read, Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them from the face of the earth. Turn your face from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them. And if you want to know how to pray, and you're looking in the Old Testament, I would suggest that here it is. God created a situation in which he teach Moses how to pray. 
And Moses says effectively, God, you started this. The glory of your name is at stake. So you better finish it. And he cites own, God's own promises which uh, had not been annulled. And so we read that God then relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There was, of course, still judgment coming initially through Moses. For when he returned from the mountain with the two tablets, in fury he threw them to the ground, causing them to shatter. We read that he then burned the calf, ground it to powder, mixed it with water, and made the Israelites drink it. A concoction that was most probably poisonous, making the point in dramatic fashion that idolatry kills. He then confronts his errant brother Aaron, who may well have urged his brother Moses to keep his Aaron, but who then offered surely the lamest excuse after the lamest joke in biblical history. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. And he goes on. I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf as if by magic. The Old Testament equivalent of the dog ate my homework. And an account so pathetic, we have to say, that Moses doesn't even furnish it with a response. Instead, he instigates the dreadful punishment on the people by the Levites that their betrayal deserved. It's so hard for us to read, being on the other side of the cross, where Jesus has already taken the punishment that we all deserved. But let's note too, the love and compassion of Moses for his people that follows, which on one level foreshadows the work of Christ on the cross. For Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, please forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses the innocent offers to pay the ultimate price for the guilty. But God turns the offer down, for he has other purposes for Moses. Instead, he sends his own punishment on the people, an unspecified plague. But with that, the matter is closed. The journey to the promised land continues. And some also important lessons had been learnt. Namely, if you want to reach the promised land, trust in God's promises. If God says it will happen, believe it will happen. And be patient. What is 40 days and 40 nights in the context of 400 years of slavery in Egypt? And obey the commandments. You shall have no other gods before him or beside me. And you shall not worship any man-made image like the Egyptians do. For the Lord your God is the one true God. And he is jealous, which in the case of God is, is not a weakness. It's not failure. It's simply God demanding what God deserves. His glory can't be shared with something man-made, with something made up. It's his alone. If God is God, the right response to him can only be worship, reverence and obedience. And only through them can peace, joy and contentment ultimately 
be found. It was true for the people of God then. And it's true for the people of God now. Which is why the New Testament makes the same point about idolatry, actually. And why contemporary Christian writers like Tim Keller, who wrote this fantastic book, Counterfeit Gods, write so much about. I recommend it to you. We may even do a sermon series on it in a term or two's time. So we can see, then, idolatry also taught in the New Testament. Paul, for example, said in Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Grouping all of those things together with idolatry. John, at the end of his first letter, said, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And it was true of Jesus, too, who, without using the word idolatry, certainly made the same point. Warning, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So what do we learn from all this? That idolatry is about our heart. It's about our treasure. And an idol is anything that captures our heart and becomes our treasure. That is the desires and aspirations of our heart. What we're living for instead of God. So what are the things that we particularly need to be on our guard about? Because I don't think it's golden calves, is it? Well, of course, idolatry can be money and possessions. We've mentioned that plenty of times. But also so many other things, different things that affect different age groups at different times. But here's a list of things that we can make idols today. Power, fame, popularity, postcode, property, new kitchens, new extensions, beautiful gardens, knowledge or intelligence, qualifications, Status through achievements like sport, exams, career, looks, peer approval, saving face, being independent, an easy life, a comfortable life, financial security, cars, motorbikes, boats, fashion, appearance, more generally our body, fitness, sex, health, alcohol, smoking, drugs, romantic love, being needed, our role at work or our role in church, family, a great political sporting cause, even West Ham. (laughs) With their new vastly expensive new squad now set to lose football matches in more entertaining ways this afternoon. But here's the interesting thing. How many of these things are bad in themselves? Virtually none. And idols rarely are. But they become idols when they replace God as the greatest desire of our hearts. In other words, there's a hierarchy. Only God can truly satisfy. And the other things are to be enjoyed as gifts of God, but not to be enjoyed instead of God. Jesus put it like this. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things 
will be given to you. The danger we all face then is that we take these good things and turn them into ultimate things, i.e. things that we think can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. They become the things we daydream about, and they become the things we dread to lose. So what is an idol? It's anything that is more important to us than God. Anything that absorbs our heart, our imagination, our time, our resources, our prayers, than God himself. Anything we look to give us, what only God can give. It's anything so central and so essential to our lives that if we lose it, we feel our life would be hardly worth living. Which means it's even true of the people we love the most. But I finish by answering a very important question. Why do idols, these false gods, fail to satisfy us? And how does God satisfy us and set us free from these things? Well, these other things are trying to help us feel good about ourselves and to be loved and accepted by others. But we're never content. And a famous quote by John D. Rockefeller captures that well. He was a billionaire in America in the early 1900s, and as such is still considered the richest person ever in modern history. But when a reporter asked him how much money is enough, he responded, just a little bit more. It's never enough. We're never satisfied. And we're always insecure. And Tim Keller, who wrote that book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, quoted in another book, Madonna, and her insecurity, who said this, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and and uninteresting unless... I do something else. Keller paraphrases her thoughts like this. Now I have got the verdict that I am somebody. But the next day, I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because my ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. It doesn't matter what, how much I throw into it. Nothing is ever enough. He concludes, we might be tempted to think of her as neurotic. No. She simply knows herself better than we know ourselves. Or she is simply being more honest. So, compare that with what God offers. He satisfies us by loving us completely. He demonstrated this when he sent Jesus to die for us. And by trusting in him, we can know that forgiveness and that total love that only God can give. And then here's the thing. When we embrace that, we no longer need to do all those other things to earn people's love. Instead, we can be totally secure in who we are because we are secure in God's love. 
We don't need to worry about what other people think of us because God loves us, God values us, and God will always take care of us if we trust in him. So we don't need power, popularity, wealth, or fame. For we already have the greatest thing that we can ever have. And that's why Lucy, that's why Beth can give up their time to go and help those in greatest need in Calais, to go and help teach young people about Jesus who so desperately need to hear about him. That's how they can pass by better paid uh, other options with more worldly status because they're secure in God and are embracing his call to seek first the kingdom and trust him to give them everything else they need. For they know they've got the one thing we all need above anything else, the love and presence of God. Which is where I want to finish now, bringing it back to the story. For some of us will say this sometimes, I can't feel God. I feel like I pray and he's silent. I can't see him or sense him. And in this story, the golden calf, they felt alone. Moses had been gone too long. But were they really alone? No, they couldn't feel him. But he was right there. And we have God's presence with us in a way they didn't. Every believer in Jesus now possesses the Holy Spirit. But if we depend on always feeling God, we're going to feel lost and alone most of the time. This is a majorly important bit of biblical teaching. The presence of God is perceived and grasped by faith, not feeling. God had promised them that he'd never leave them and would always provide for them. And he'd prove that to them by those great mighty displays of power. And in a time of darkness, they needed to trust what God had said and done, not what they were feeling and seeing at that moment. Just as we need to trust something that reveals God's compassion and closeness even more. The cross, where Jesus showed his love and power and commitment to us. So when we feel God is absent, the cross can assure us that he is not. So what do you do when you can't feel it? Believe the light of the cross, not the darkness of your feelings. Keep your faith on the facts of what Jesus has done for you and practically do this through a daily time with God, reminding yourself of his love for you and his power for you. You can do that by reading scriptures, devotionals, or by listening to worship songs that sing of it. You can do it by getting out into the beautiful countryside or looking up at the moon and the stars that proclaim it. Whatever works for you, bring yourself back to the assurance of his love, his promises, and his care. So what do we need to do to be happy and joyful and contented and peaceful in life and with who we are? What do we need to do to fulfill the purposes God has for us as individuals and as a church? So we won't be stiff-necked people those unwilling to go where he wants to take us. Well, we need to turn from idols and turn back to the God 
who has given us all good things. Amen.